All right. I am once again joined by J. Andrew World, our graphic designer at GTAA, uh, graphic designer at various other places, album cover designer, graphic novelist. Um, and by the way, we were talking about documentary styles of, uh, of graphic novels uh, yesterday. I can't believe we didn't think of Harvey P. Cartoon, but anyway... Um, and uh and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, man of many talents. Uh, and he was out, of course, on Tuesday, and then we got cut off very abruptly in the middle of TJ's call. So TJ, if you if you hear this, please do call back in uh, and let's do your question today. But uh but yeah, there was a little tech issue there. But I want to start back up and I was I was hoping Andy uh maybe we could kind of start by painting a little bit of a broader um you know, picture here and uh, and take me through some of this relevant history that you were telling me about uh, off air. Yeah, no, I've um I've been doing a lot of research and I'm still trying to find a place for it in the project that I'm working on. So uh, it's actually really good for me to 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 practice telling uh, some of this history. But um, with immigration, you kind of want to go back um, to the Civil War because that really is where things started to change. Um, there's there's two things that were going on after the Civil War. Now, in the South, um, labor was taken care of with sharecropping, which was a whole other thing. And um, I've not done any uh, reading up on uh, sharecropping recently, but like it is bad. Uh, so so we'll just leave it at that. But in the Southwest, they didn't have uh, sharecropping like that. What they were starting to do is uh, bringing in. Um, you know, uh, Mexicans to, to, to work on their farms, also Native Americans. Uh, Native Americans would um, uh, boat down from California, down the Cal- you know, down, down California coast from Canada, and, and uh, work their way up through the season. Uh, you know, uh, doing you know, earning money by uh, uh, by, by farming, and um, uh, Mexican workers would do the same thing. Would would come across and work their way down and back to, to Mexico, um, creating this new low-paid uh, system. There's a great book that kind of outlines a lot of this called um, Hobos, which I, I uh, don't recommend the book unless you really want to read about like migrant labor, because that's what the book's about. It's not a fact about hobos, which is why I started reading it. Um, so occasionally you might get a colorful story about like some crazy hobo on a train or, or something like that, but um, most of it is actually about migrant labor. Uh, so <laughs> Um, uh, but the other thing that was going on in this region was the, uh, anti-Chinese policies, which, um, uh, I, I think, um, Adam Goodman did a great job at the deportation machine outlining like how that's kind of the forerunners of, of basically the modern immigration system. And with the, um, uh, with a lot of the anti-Chinese laws, I mean, they're, they're basically preventing migration from China uh in japan and and uh you know the the um uh southeast uh asia there um uh you know during colonization which which where there's a lot of people being displaced um uh this is also right around the time where where the uh emperor of china collapsed and uh you know there, there were a lot of warlords kind of popping up um so so it's a it's, a, it's an interesting time in china uh Japan's yeah. modernizing, and you have um, uh, you know industrialization of Japan. Um, so people are, people are you know leaving because they they're looking for better work or they're getting displaced. Um, so so you know they're coming across the ocean, but then they're getting immediately turned around and sent back. 
Uh, and there's a book which I have not read on this subject, which sounds fascinating, that just came out last year. So uh, about the uh, people who, who migrated to America from Japan and kind of lost their home uh, in, in this this era, you know, going into World War II. But uh, the, the, the important thing about the whole um, Chinese, uh, you know, the anti-Chinese laws is that uh, it allowed um, this gentleman named Frank W. Berkshire, who was a Chinese inspector, which I love that name because I just imagined him, you know, wearing like a trench coat and a fedora. <laughs> Excuse me, ma'am. Um, Chinese inspector, your fortune cookie doesn't say uh, Capricious Say. We're going to have to compensate you well. You know? Right, 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 right. Um, but, but uh, no, he, he was, uh, you know, he, he was this um, bureaucrat. And it's, it's actually fascinating because, like, um, he keeps popping up in different parts of history. Uh, mm-hmm. Because uh, when Emma Goldman was uh, deported, he was the guy who was in charge of the boat that uh, sailed out to um, uh, Finland uh, that, that, you know, dropped them off and made them march across Finland to, to Russia. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, and and um, I, I, uh, the, the funny thing is, is, is how we know this is because his mom died. And there was a paper in El Paso that published an article about his mother's passing because he was living in El Paso at the time. And um, but they were having trouble getting a hold of him because he was on this boat. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, historian found this information out. And that's, uh, oh, I, uh, no, but there's a there's a, a historian out of um, uh, Kentucky who, who works at a library who, who, who dug that up. So, um, you know, shout, shout out to her. And her, a lot of her work ended up on the um uh, the the uh, 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 not ICE the the other um, immigration border patrol uh, not border patrol it's the third one it's like three, no it's not ICE it's um, uh, immigration customs enforcement oh no it's immigration ICE. no it's there's a, there's three of them and it's it's a, it's ridiculous it's uh, customs and border protection there we go. There we go. It's it's ridiculous. But but anyways, um, there's a guy who who's a historian from there who has all this, basically her work on the website. So uh, I was able to track it down, and, and it was uh, you know I've read a lot of these uh, primary sources because uh, you know Frank Berkshire was not necessarily a bad guy that I can tell. Uh. Because, like he was bragging about how like oh we have these super new washing machines so we can clean people's uh, you know uh, clothes when they get here and. The, giving people fresh clothes and it's like, wow, like a hundred years ago, we were so much more civil. Um, right. and, and this is also when border patrol was, you know, filled up with people who were, um, uh, former Texas Rangers and Klansmen. Um, and, and the reason why I punch Texas Rangers is Texas Rangers were mostly a, uh, force used to, uh, remove, um, you know, uh, Tex, you know, native Texan, uh, Mexicans or, or people of Mexican descent or Tejanos really. Um, and, and we're, we're basically, we're displacing them to give white people their land. I mean, that, that's what the Texas Rangers were. So right. uh, when, when the border patrol first started up, that is who was basically being recruited were Texas Rangers and uh, these Chinese inspectors. And okay. uh, there's a book called Mahente, which is uh, all about the history of like, how the, uh, all these people are like, you know, Klansmen and, you know, just horrible, horrible people. Um, you know, uh, the, the history of the Border Patrol is full of just, just absolute ghouls. 
Um, but like I said, Berkshire does not necessarily seem like a ghoul. Uh, however, there's no evidence to say that he wasn't also. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Uh, but he was like a bureaucrat. He did actually see adventure once because one of his guys got shot in Mexico. And he had to like go down there and got arrested. And, and there was like a big standoff with him in the Mexican military. Um, but a lot of this, uh, his idea of starting the Border Patrol came from the uh, Mexican uh, Civil War there, uh, the Mexican Revolution, uh, you know, in the uh, 1910s and 1920s, where there were, uh, there was actually a lot of displacement of um, uh, people from their communities, and they were fleeing to the United States because it was safer than staying in Mexico. Um, so, so he pitched to Congress, and because Pancho Villa invaded the U.S., um, Congress started funding it by 1924. Um, uh, the, the border patrol was up and going. Got it. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to, you have some, yeah, go jump in if you have something. Cause... Uh, sure. So I, I am a little, um, okay. So, so that's nine two twenty four for the border patrol. Um, and, I know that in terms of actual immigration laws, um, there's the, I mean, if I'm remembering this right, for like the longest time, there's like basically just like a couple, right? There's the, you know, the big one is Chinese exclusion, but well, then... Before that, uh, that, that, that um, I don't even remember, but it was like... Uh you know, the uh, Whig people, you know, back in like uh, the, the, the 1790s was like the first law on immigration. So, you know. They... Oh, like uh, like the, uh, I, I know what you're talking about, the uh, the sedition and like something, something, no, something. It's a whole other act. Um, it's, it's re- honestly, it's really not that important, but oh, like yeah. uh, it is the first actual immigration law that we passed. So that is the only reason why, you know, it ever gets mentioned. But yeah, really, you know, Chinese, um, uh, you know, Ch- Chinese. Uh... Chinese exclusion, right? There's so, um, so and then like, and then there are some basic restrictions on like people being set back for failing medical tests and stuff like that. But as far as immigration from Europe or elsewhere in the Americas, um, it's like, you know, almost a free-for-all for a very, very long time. I mean, like, when does that really change? Actually, the 1920s. Um, Woodrow, uh, not Woodrow Wilson, uh, Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge, the uh, Reagan's hero. Yeah. And um, uh, the guy, um, uh, if you, you know, whenever he came out here to visit me, uh, lots of things are actually named for Coolidge because he was mayor of Northampton at one point. Uh, so so um, I actually visited his library and read a lot of his speeches um, but uh, because uh, he was actually felt that uh, immigration hurt uh, jobs, uh, which is completely disproven at this point. But, you know, 1920s, you know, we didn't right. we didn't actually know the answer. So he was actually very against immigration and really set up the first quota system, but leaving it open for people from Mexico uh, for the Brontero program, which lasted until the 60s. Okay. Got it. Um, yeah, I actually know just a little bit about this last part uh, because by the time 
like I think by the time you know, so I've so Nod Novila got me to read those big thick um Robert Caro books about LBJ. Oh, and yeah. and uh I actually just finished the last one that's out. Um there you know, he still hasn't finished, you know, like there's still like the one that like covers the bulk of the presidency still isn't out yet. But um but I, I I think in the one, you know, Master of the Senate where he's uh Speaker of the House, um this is like restrictions on Mexican sort of uh illegal labor is already an issue at that point. In fact it's a weird mixed record on that because on the one hand he was actually for like you know, children of immigrants getting an education. Right. Fought for- senator um you know uh which is good but on the other hand as president he had slaves basically from um uh you know from ins being brought over to his farm in texas to work it yeah so this is uh so one of the interesting things about this is that you know in like the 50s and 60s the politics of immigrant you know mexican um undocumented immigration are really different than they would become later uh that there are um, that like a lot that like Mexican American civil rights groups, unions, you know, Cesar Chavez, you know, people like that uh, are actually pretty hostile uh, to to, uh, you know, undocumented immigrants for sort of, you know, basically on the theory that, you know, that they're they're being used to uh, to bring down wages for, you know, people from, you know, bring down wages for Mexican immigrant workers who are. Uh, uh, who were already there, uh, but so there, there must have. So I guess there were some, and, and famously, you know, in the um, in the nineteen fifties, right? The Eisenhower administration had some kind of program to like start to crack down a little bit on like undocumented immigrants coming over from Mexico. Yeah, uh, with a really offensive name, uh, Operation Wetback. Yes, that's right. Yes, uh, back in the fifties when you could just say anything. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. Um, which, which, interesting enough, uh, like uh, because of the the actions of that that operation in Chicago, that actually kind of birthed the the uh, what we think of as the modern, um, uh, you know, immigration movement. Uh, so, so that's actually, you know, interesting fact there. All right. Fair enough. By the way, Brian, I saw you were in the queue, and then you. Oh. I think we might have lost Brian entirely. Sorry about that, Brian. I was about to actually get to you in a minute, but. Uh, Maybe out of connection problem, but in any case, um, let's. Um... Oh, sorry. Let me just read this comment. Um... <laughs> no, I think that's actually good. So it's a it's a good comment, sort of bringing us up to uh, modern immigration politics from uh, Yoda seventy one oh four, very frequent commenter on the YouTube channel says, I actually have to dip out to teach a 6 o'clock class, but for when I come back to listen later, here's what I'm calling about. Uh, demographics or destiny is a replacement theory for libs, which I actually, I actually think is kind of true, right? Like, there's this sort of... 100%. <laughs> like... It's not true at all. Like, like uh, you know, uh, George W. Bush did really well with, uh, uh, you know, with, with Latino voters. So... Yeah, yeah, I mean, like... Uh, Donald, Donald Trump. Donald, 
Yeah, yeah. D- Donald Trump improved on, on, you know, he did better with with, uh, with Latino voters than Mitt Romney did. The product uh, of Texas, you know, uh, is, is like a great example. It is on the border. It, it is like 90, or I don't know, she's 90% uh, Latino or, you know. Uh, but, but like, um, majority of people there voted for Donald Trump. And like, that has been a, a, a uh, you know, a, a Democratic stronghold in Texas for, for decades. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's totally absurd. I, I think other than, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, apart from American Jews, who for whatever reason, there's like some fascinating sociological question about that, remain relatively loyal Democratic voters, regardless, you know, <laughs> even as the uh, even as, as in group dem- uh, economics change so much. Um, everybody's up for grabs, right? I mean, as, as far as ethnicity goes, I mean, there's, there's no, like, um, you know, like the only reason, uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely not at all true that like this idea that like Democrats just somehow permanently owed those votes is completely, uh, is completely absurd. I mean, like, obviously, you know, the wheels always turning, right? I mean, like, there there are all sorts of reasons why the, you know, the partisan alignment could change. And I think it's really part of that kind of lazy thing we were talking about, I, I believe, a little bit at the end of uh, the call on Tuesday about how there's this sort of, um, I might be getting my conversations mixed up, but certainly we're talking about it here very recently, uh, about how there's this kind of bizarre tendency to believe that like every time Democrats win two elections in a row, that like, that's just it forever. <laughs> you know, that like they're never, they're just never, ever going to lose again. And I don't, I don't know. Uh, you'd think that eventually people would, would stop falling for this, but somehow they keep, they keep doing it. Um, it's really, really old people that do this too. Right? Like, you know, they've lived long enough to have seen this not play out like that. For, for like generations, <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, no, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's absurd. I think that the, I think there's absolutely no reason why it couldn't be that. I mean, you know, yeah, there's already been, um, you know, like, I mean, most, you know, most uh, Latino voters vote Democrat right now, but you know, like the. That it's a smaller majority already than it used to be. There's absolutely no reason why, especially if some of the immigration stuff were taken off the table, that couldn't, you know, that couldn't change more. Um, it's a, it's, it's a bizarre thing for, for anybody to believe, right. You know, for, uh, you know, it's a bizarre thing for, you know, Charlie Kirk to believe, you know, when he, uh, when he says that uh, it's, um you know, that like we should, you know, we should keep out immigrants so that the Republicans will win, which is just amazing, right? You know, come right out and say that like that. And it's a, it's an equally bizarre thing for, you know, for, for Democrats to, to say. And, and I remember, I mean, I hope they're finally starting to get over it a little bit, but like, I remember like just a few years ago, I mean, this was just all over the place that this is, that this, this belief that like, well, as the country became more white, then there would just have to be necessarily this permanent democratic majority. It's like, guys, you you have like, yeah, anybody who's lived like more than a couple, you know, like been around for more than a couple decades of elections. I mean, like, you know, people always rebrand, you know, like it, it shifts around all the time. There's absolutely no reason why anybody's ethnic voting pattern should stay the same forever. But in any case, I do uh, I do want to dip back before we take Kusha's call. 
Uh, I do want to dip back into uh, into this and maybe kind of speed up a little bit and go to right now, uh, because I know you were telling me before we went on, on air that like there's a there's a noteworthy development uh, on this front like today. Yeah, Atlanta Journal Constitution, which unfortunately um, I couldn't pull up on my iPad uh, on my computer because uh, I was looking at it earlier on my iPad and I have yeah whatever we'll be open it. But uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution is reporting about um, a big spike in ankle monitoring for, for immigrants in Atlanta. Okay. Uh, Atlanta's been a, a big hotspot uh, for, for uh, immigration issues because that's where the sterilization was happening uh, a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, I don't know. T- time is a flat circle. Sure, uh, sure. But, but, you know, uh, in, in the near past, that was, that was a major story about the, uh, about the sterilizations. That was happening out of Georgia. Um, and it looks like uh, there's this private company profiting greatly off of um, ankle monitors for a group of people that like, you know, like, like nearly all of them. It's like 91 percent, I think, uh, like, like it's like the low ball number actually show up to all of their um, uh, their court dates. And, and you know, so, yeah. so no need for ankle monitoring. But yet here's this this captive audience that. Uh, um, that that, that uh, uh, ice is um, you know using to, to uh, basically like uh, tag and release people, and, and, which is ridiculous because like we said uh, you know as of uh, you know the last episode, Biden has sped up being able to get like driver's licenses, work permits, and whatnot to thirty days of after arrival. So like these people should be getting on with their lives. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. But of course, this it's also much easier to do it than it would be for just like random people with speeding tickets and stuff that, you know, they might or might not show up to court for uh, because you're talking about a group of people who definitionally don't like vote or, you know, exercise political powers. So you can kind of do what you want to them within um, at least much broader parameters, Uh, which, you know, which is also, I should say, like, you know, you were kind of mentioned the job issue earlier, and it is, of course, certainly true that, um, like, the overall economic data doesn't really seem to support the idea that there is at least the relationship between job numbers for native-born workers and, um, and, and immigrant jobs that a lot of people sort of intuitively think there is, uh, probably because immigration is, you know, um, you know, is good for economic growth, which makes sense. Uh, I, I mean, I think on the wage issue, I think it is a little bit more complicated, but I've always sort of thought two things about that. So, um, you know, it is perfectly true that having a group of people who don't, who are a lot more desperate, who have a lot less recourse, um, that uh, has, you know, like can be paid less. I mean, that's just true, right? That and and that uh, and that as such. Um, you know, there are reasons why employers, you know, like that situation. And and none of the premise there is exactly wrong. I, I just always thought, okay, one, um, it always makes me think of, I'm sure you know, Andy, there's that uh, famous Ursula Le Guin story, uh, the one who's, ones who walk away from Omelas. Uh Actually, no, I don't. I I, I hate to say this. I, I uh, My dad never introduced me to Ursula Le Guin. Um, okay, okay. So, so it's this... Um, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna lightly spoil this uh, the story. It's not really a plot based story. Uh, the uh, so there's a famous uh, short story by Ursula K. Le Guin uh, called "The Ones Who Ones Who Walked Away from Mobilos, 
which is basically about this utopian city that's described in loving and lavish detail in the first bunch of the story, and then it turns out in some supernatural way that's not really spelled out um, that uh, there's this there's this child who's basically being tortured his whole life, and that like that's how they keep the society like this. And so when people like could turn eighteen or whatever, they're told you know they're basically shown the kid. And, you know, if you do anything to help him, you know, then, then all this would fall apart. And they're, you know, and so it's the people who stay or who, you know, walk away. And it's just like, okay, I mean, the I- idea that the thing that I'm supposed to do to bring, you know, to bring up wages is to support, like, you know, tracking down desperate people across the desert and, like, you know, putting them in cages or separating families or, you know, like sending them back to, like, face, like, cartel violence, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, that, that, that seems pretty, uh, it seems pretty obelossy to me, right? Like, I think the, I think the, the vastly better solution to that problem is, is just to, um, you know, I mean, look, it's, I mean, you know, we don't have to make this more complicated than it is. I mean, during Jim Crow, uh, black workers, you know, I mean, still, right, there are economic disparities, nothing like what they were, you know, in the Jim Crow era, but there are still economic disparities, but, you know, especially during Jim Crow, right, black workers, you know, could be paid much less for the same work than white workers. And, you know, employers would like that and use that to their advantage sometimes, right? I mean, this the solution wasn't to, like, somehow, you know, to somehow pro- forcibly prevent black people from having jobs. The solution was to end Jim Crow. And, um, you know, I think something parallel is true here, right? You know, that that just sort of make people citizens so they could, like, you know, kind of come out of the shadows and, like vote and join labor unions and stuff like that um, is like a much better way of no, of having them no longer be this high, you know, hyper exploitable labor force. No, exactly. Um, you know, I mean, even, even like if there were open borders, you know, which is my yeah. eventual, like, like vision of everything, um, you know, why can't people just follow where the work was like, like back uh, uh, in, you know, uh, Hundred, you know, 150 years ago, when our borders were much more open and people were doing this, but but also being able to form a labor union uh, so they can be paid well too and treated, you know, with dignity and have opportunity for their children. Yeah, no, exactly. All right, let's uh, let's get Kusha. Kusha, what is the guy on your mind? Hey, good afternoon, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. And, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, thank you. And uh, nice to speak with you as well, Jay Andrew, for the first time. Um, well, what's, uh, what's on my mind is about this issue of uh, immigration. And I think in your description, you talked about how there's been a sort of you know, long, concerted effort against immigrants and refugees. And what I'm really curious about is when it comes to the United States and um, the fact that there is a certain constituency of refugees that come from, for instance, Vietnam, say, for instance, like Venezuela, Cuba. Do you think mm-hmm. the U.S. government has like a tendency to want to let in more like right wing folks who are um, immigrants in such areas when the United States has foreign interventions in um, respective countries? Or do you think that just happens to be incidental? I mean, I think definitely in the Cuba case, I mean, that's, it's not incidental. I mean, that since, um, you know, the United States, 
has or certainly has had in the recent past a completely different immigration system, essentially, uh, for uh, for Cubans than for people from everywhere else. Um, that you know the um, uh, you know that the the policy uh, for um, you know the you know I mean the policy for I think this is that this actually finally started to change in late Obama. Somebody can fact check me about that. Um, but you know we kind of had a sort of weird version of open borders for uh, for for Cuban <laughs> really? immigrants. Because because uh, there was something called wet foot, dry foot, which meant that um, certainly the whole time I was living in Miami, you know, this was the policy, which was essentially that like if the border patrol caught you in the ocean, they could send you back, but if you you know, but if you like touched home base, you know, <laughs> that you actually got really? onto. Yeah, seriously. Uh, they, uh, Guantanamo Bay up until uh, you know uh, until the Bush era was used as a deportation station. And uh, an AIDS concentration camp for uh, Haitian refugees. Yeah, no, that's also true. Um, and but yeah, in fact, and, and there was like something I remember in like the um, you know early mid nineties, you know, when there was the uh, after Aristide was thrown overthrown the first time. Uh, that was like kind of a notorious thing that like that sort of glaring double standard, right? You know that uh, that Haitians got set back and Cubans got to stay. Um, you know, like a considering that they were actually fleeing from a, you know, much more objectionable dictatorship, but, um, but yeah, that, that, uh, but really the policy, it sounds like a joke, but I mean, you know, I think pretty much throughout the cult, you know, like for the longest time, the policy was that if you were a Cuban and you, you set foot in Florida, uh, even if you, you know, like came over with no legal process whatsoever. Like you just got on a, you know, you just got on a boat and snuck over. Uh, then uh, as soon as you set foot in Florida, um, you at least, you know, you weren't deported uh, there. You know, I'm sure there was some further process, but I mean like the, but because the cold war policy was that anybody who came over from Cuba was kind of presumptively considered to be like a legitimate political refugee, at least once they got to the U S yeah, and my understanding is that it's it's still there. It's just slightly harder than it used to be, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what the rules are right now for uh, for for immigrants and refugees from Cuba, but I I, I, I am I am going to say with with great confidence right, that uh, that the path is is that you know greased right you know compared to uh, to you know to what you have to go through if you're you know getting out a little boat from you know, from Haiti still, for example, um, or, or Southern border. Yeah. Or, or if you're, or if you're, you know, fleeing across the Southern border, absolutely. Uh, so, it, and in the Cuba case, I mean, I think there's no doubt about it, right? I mean, like some of these others, I mean, I guess I'd have to look a little bit more about the de- <laughs> at the details and, you know, like they have a, and it's, it's, you know, like I would be, you know, I would think, I think it would be the least surprising thing ever, if the immigration and asylum systems generally smiled on, uh, on you know, like uh, anti-Bolivarian, like kind of upper middle class Venezuelans, you know, in a way that they did it, you know, for people coming over from many other countries. Uh, that, yeah, as I said, that would be the least surprising thing ever. But certainly in the Cuba case, it's just blatant, right? I mean, because this was, mm-hmm. the, you know, this is, um, 
like this is part of the Cold War hostility towards uh, you know towards towards Cuba that there was this kind of presumption that everybody was was fleeing from oppression and you know and um you know and, and I think even even the system I just described I believe is actually tightened up compared to what it was in like the eighties. Like I think that the uh, I think that in the nineties, like like in the Clinton years, maybe like late Bush senior years, uh, they might have already started to be like a little bit like more hostile towards like Cubans, like who they caught well, in the war. Was kind of, it, was a, it was part of the shift too that that whole um, uh, you know ordeal with that uh, with that. Yeah, yeah, no, the Ilya Gonzalez for sure, right? Um, and but like also, I think that there's a um, you know there's a there's a class there's a class element too, which is that uh, the sort of typical uh, Cuban coming over to the United States in like the '60s, '70s, probably even the '80s uh, was more likely to be. You know, somebody who, I mean, obviously not always, obviously there are going to be a zillion exceptions, but, you know, like, I, I think I think who they were kind of thinking of when they set up the system to make it quite so easy was somebody who was like, a, you know, had been part of the privileged strata of Cuban society beforehand, um, you know, which is like, you know, my mom during certain parts of her childhood was in Florida, you know, I mean, before they moved back to Ohio. And, um, and then she, I remember her telling me that she was in, um, uh, that she was actually, uh, in, uh, Czechoslovakia as, you know, like she was like a, you know, she was like an exchange student in Europe at one point as a teenager, she was like 17 or something and she was in, um, and while she, you know, she was in, you know, Germany, but then like while she was there, she made this trip into Czechoslovakia and she saw, and you know, at the hotel, there was like the, you know, it's like the Cuban Olympic team or something was training there. And she was really surprised because like basically all of the Cubans that she'd ever seen in Florida were white. Right. You know, and, uh, and she was really surprised by the racial demographics and, you know, and that's like, because again, people who were part of the relatively more privileged parts of Cuban society were mostly coming over earlier. Whereas later, like in the nineties, after the Soviet Union fell, there was what was called the special economic period in Cuba, which was just this, this period of like total collapse and disaster where like, you know, for a few years, everybody kind of stopped driving their, their car and just rode a bicycle and stuff like that. Uh, and during that period, there were a lot more people who were coming over for purely economic reasons. So, you know, tended to be poor people, darker skinned, etc. And, you know, you can make your own conclusions about whether this is a coincidence or not, but I think that's when they started cracking down more on people they caught in the water. Yeah, and also after uh, Castro released the prisoners, that that last one. Uh, oh, the... Uh, Mariel Boatlift? Yeah. Yeah. I actually had a question. I would really like to know your thoughts on this, Ben, and you as well, Jay Andrew, since you're the one who just brought this up about the, the boat lift which was like, I know that that was literally the source of a huge fissure within the neoliberal democratic establishment among the last, the only two uh, Democrats who closed out the 20th century after the Lyndon Baines Johnson administration, uh, James Earl Carter Jr. and William Jefferson Clinton, which was when Clinton was the governor of Arkansas 
And it was Jimmy Carter who said, quote, we'll continue to provide an open heart and open arms to refugees seeking freedom for com from communist domination, from economic deprivation brought about primarily by Fidel Castro and his government, end quote. And so essentially what happened was he wanted all these refugees to come in from, you know, the mayoral boat lift and around that time, like 1980 or so, 81, I suppose, uh, yeah. And then <clears throat> he wanted them to go to Alabama, uh, was it uh, Arkansas rather? Yeah, where Clinton was governor, and he and, and Clinton threatened to bring out the National Guard. Exactly, and so like, would do you think that played a role in like Carter not wanting to? Because Carter said he voted for Bernie Sanders, if I'm not mistaken, and there was a speech they had. Yeah, yeah, he he did, which is which is kind of shocking it because of it's you know kind of surprising to me. I'm, it was kind of surprising to me, to be honest. Do you think that played? Like, yeah, well, I mean, because because like you. Yeah, maybe right. You know that he still had he still had a beef with the Clinton family. That's possible. I mean, part of the reason that was so shocking is that, like, you know, I mean, read your Rick Perlstein, uh, Carter, who's remembered. Is he a journalist? Oh, uh, Rick Perlstein is. Yeah, he's he's a historian. He um, uh, he's written a series of books, basically about the the history of the conservative movement. So. Um, cool. There's one called Before the Storm, which is about the Goldwater campaign. There's one called Nixon Land. Um, there's one called The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon, The Rise of Reagan. And there's one called Reagan Land. And um, uh, very much worth reading. But like if you read 800 pages, too. So, so just. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing the name. I'm really curious in that. Yeah. It's an easy read, though. Like it might be 6,000 pages, but it's an easy read. Yeah, no, they're they're extremely extremely interesting books, but in um, but yeah, if you if you read those books, right, and like you know read you know Reaganland, which, which is where he's talking about the Carter administration, I mean, very unabashedly, right, the Carter administration was really the beginning of the sort of neoliberal turn in the Democratic Party that culminated with uh, with Clintonism. And so it's it's like that's kind of a crazy detail that Jimmy Carter in his retirement actually voted for Bernie Sanders. Yeah, um, well, it was shocking. I was shocked. Yeah. I, so I guess it just felt so bad destroying the Middle East where my parents are from, <laughs> and and uh, destroying Iran. That uh, now he spends so much of his life with Habitat Humanity, and I know he picks up a lot of trash in his neighborhood. So. After he trashed him the least, I guess he decided he might want to do some things a little bit better post-presidency. So that's how yeah. I always try to understand why he would do these things yeah. for Sanders. And I know a lot of people like conflate Jimmy Carter from 1970s to, uh, with Jimmy Carter today. And it's like, no, like, like Jimmy Carter's really grown as a person. Jimmy Carter in the 1970s was garbage. <laughs> no, that's yeah, that is that is exactly correct. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean, even the fact that like. I mean, I, I, and I will say, I mean, like, even before that Bernie vote, I mean, like, he, he had the book where he, he referred to uh, um, uh, to Israel, to the occupation, and possibly even to the, you know, discrimination against, uh, you know, Palestinian citizens. Uh, you know, I haven't read the book, but, you know, but he refers to it, I know, as, as apartheid. And that's oh, like a... Yeah, I think Monty has that book. And that's like, uh, and, and that itself, I mean, again, it's just an amazing departure from, uh, you know, from what he was like as president, you know, so, um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess people, uh, people can change, especially when they're far from the levers of power. 
Um, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's inconvenient for the rest of us, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, well, I mean, it's like I always wondered. So in 2003, I remember Al Gore, like, came out very clearly against the war in Iraq, and it's great. I'm glad he did it. But, like, also, I always wondered. It's like, okay, but he did that after not only was he not, you know, president, or at least not serving his term as president, uh, but he was like, he really had no further aspirations to to be a politician, right? I mean, like, this is like, yeah. this is his new job was like, he was a liberal crusader and like, you know, so it's, it's you know, and Apple, right? Then he went to Apple or one of these big companies on the board, am I not mistaken? Yeah, he's, yeah, right. no, like, like, yeah, I mean, he's kind of the ultimate corporate well, environmentalist. Money, you know? Yeah, Apple, I think it was. But yeah, um, I mean, in Jimmy Carter's case, I mean, I wonder if, you know, I think it's possible that it might be a little bit more sincere, but it's still, uh, <laughs> you know, anyway, it's still very strange. Let's get. Um... Thank you, Ben. All right. Thank you, Kusha. Uh, let's get Cindy's. Like, I want to get off in just a minute, but let's get Cindy's question. In. Yes. Cindy, are you there? I can't quite hear you. Can you hear me now? Uh, very faintly, but I hear you. Sorry. Okay. Um, so, Jimmy Carter still does, he does builds for Habitat for Humanity still. I think it's just to redeem himself for all the shit he did while he was in office. Yeah. Like, he's in his 90s, and he's still doing Habitat for Humanity. So, I think he's really doing it just to try to redeem himself. Uh, it's entirely possible. Yeah, yeah. Get the if if he has a little. Did you know that Bernie Sanders actually has had a deal with the Democrats since like since he first ran for office? That if they don't run anyone against him, he will vote however they want him to vote. Mm, I don't. I actually don't know that. I I have. I uh... saw. I saw a newspaper article about it. So. Okay, well, well, send me, you know, DMs are open. Send, uh, send me the article. I'll, t- I'll take a look at what you're talking about. I don't actually, um, I mean, I think if you look at his voting record over the, you know, over the course of the last seven years, I'd be a little skeptical about that, but I will, I will take a look at the information you send me. So um, fair enough. All right. He's allowed uh, to vote for however he wants to because his vote doesn't make a difference. Okay, and but that's so he started backing Joe Biden and stopped advocating for Medicare for all and everything else that actually helps people. But he does still talk about Medicare for all all the time. Except that he is more for the public option now, like. These people did not back Medicare for All. None of the people that said they would back Medicare for All actually back it locally in office now. Okay, I don't, I don't know what Bernie Sanders is doing differently with regard to Medicare for All now than he did. I mean, he's still, like, if you just, you know, I mean, if you just do a quick search of his Twitter account for Medicare for All, you'll see him talk about it, you know, pretty regularly. Um and so, I mean, it's it's certainly the case that right now it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have anything like the, you know, the votes it would take to to pass. I mean, there's there's, there's still the thing kicking around, and you know, and and collecting, you know, and collecting co-sponsors. I mean, I guess what I would say 
is um, is that if it's um, like, I mean, if there are specific things that you think he should be doing that he's not doing, you know, to to push Medicare for all, I mean, I think that's a totally legitimate discussion. Yeah, um, he should have backed the Medicare for all March, and he didn't. Yeah, uh, I mean, maybe I don't know. I have a, uh, I, I, I think that the whole thing I have to say from my perspective did seem like a little half-assed. Uh, now, if if the you know maybe he he could have. You know, maybe he should be like organizing more things like that. I mean, I don't know that like that one particular effort, you know, like not getting involved in it by itself, you know, means, you know, means very much. I mean, I certainly think that in that exact time period that you're talking about, that this alleged deal would be like 2015 to the present. Um, he's, you know, he's done, um, he's certainly done more than any other single individual person to bring Medicare for all kind of into the, you know, public consciousness, have people talk about it and argue about it. You know, he still talks about it all the time. Um, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, unfortunately I don't think anybody has like a sort of magical, like this is the thing that's going to achieve Medicare for all right now. Cause I think the basic thing is that the American working class is just not very organized and not very powerful. And, um, you know, the left doesn't actually have the capacity to unseat most of the people that we'd have to unseat to actually to actually pass it. But, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I have to say from where I'm sitting, it seems like, you know, he's done more to at least chip away at those barriers than anybody else. All that seems kind of like excuses to me, because if the Medicare for All March wasn't well organized, these well organized politicians that said they were for Medicare for All should have taken it over and organized it properly and showed up and none of them did none of yeah them I, I mean i guess i don't know why those particular protests like i i, I guess just just see that like seeing okay the seven years of relentlessly eating breathing sleeping medicare for all constantly talking about medicare for all being the main reason anybody knows who medicare for all is but that like he didn't jump on this one particular pretty marginal protest thing. I mean, to me, that seems like a super duper weak argument. Like, like that seems that's, I mean, it was pretty marginal. I mean, they have a, but like, it also like, that seems like an excuse to me. That seems like, okay, for whatever reason, you've got this narrative in your head that Bernie is a big sellout and you're looking for ammunition and this is the best you can come up with. And like, frankly, it doesn't seem like, um, it doesn't seem like much, right? I mean, it's, this seems like pretty weak sauce to me. But anyway, uh, Cindy seems to have hung up on us. Uh, I really was about to go anyway. Uh, Got to be out Feldman in nine minutes, and uh, Jed has come home since. Uh, probably should get off. But uh, Andy, what do you have coming up? Uh, well, tomorrow I'm going to be talking about Viva Zapata, where I'm going to be covering some of this uh, history, uh, but mostly focused on the uh, Mexican Civil War. All right, very nice, very topical. So uh, give us the uh, the time and uh, all that. People can watch that. Yeah, it'll be 8 o'clock and uh, Boogie Night Extravaganza. You can find us on Twitter and um, uh, Twitch. No, Twitch and YouTube uh, is where we broadcast. And uh, if, if you see my uh, Twitter, uh, I have a link in my bio, so you can actually uh, get all those links right there. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Andy. All right, thank you. 
All right. Left is best. <laughs>